Chapter Four, Part Four, of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion, edited by Gerald Burney Smith. Chapter Four, Part Four, The Study of the New Testament. Two. THE HISTORY OF THE NEW TESTAMENT IN THE CHRISTIAN CHURCH 1. HISTORY OF INTERPRETATION AND CRITICISM a. ANCIENT INTERPRETATION GENERALLY ALLEGORICAL The Pharisees had believed the law of Moses to be verbally inspired, and the Hellenistic Jews had extended this predicate to the whole of their scriptures, which included all the Hebrew Bible and much more beside. As thus inspired the divine word must, it was thought, be in all its parts capable of religious edification. This idea is very clearly put in Second Timothy. Every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, which is in righteousness. This was precisely the view of the Jews of the Greco-Roman world about the Jewish scriptures. But many passages of these writings did not, when taken literally, yield any such moral instruction and pious Jews were carried along by their own principle to an allegorical treatment of them, by which the most unpromising narrative or ordinance could be made to serve the purpose of religion. It did not matter that the allegorical interpreter extracted from his text only what he had previously put into it. The dogma was satisfied. This way of using the Old Testament is familiarly exemplified in the writings of Philo of Alexandria. Paul occasionally falls back into it, and the writer of Hebrews habitually employs it. Growing up under the shadow of the Old Testament and coming at length to share its position of scriptural authority, the New Testament shared also in the allegorical treatment it received. From the time the New Testament books began to be regarded as scripture, we find Arrhenius and Origen treating them allegorically and finding in them types and figures of spiritual need and remedy. The scholars of Antioch, it is true, kept themselves free from this fallacious and illusory method of using scripture, and practiced the literal interpretation of the New Testament, which John Chrysostom, their greatest preacher, conspicuously exemplified. But except for an occasional figure like Theodore of Mopsuestia, the allegorical method, under the influence of the scholars and teachers of Alexandria, prevailed in the early church. b. Eclipse of Ancient Criticism the collection of the New Testament writings into a sacred and authoritative canon incidentally removed them from the reach of criticism, that is, critical inquiry into their authenticity and historical character. But ancient Christianity was not altogether unconscious of critical doubts and critical method. Julius Africanus, the friend of Origen, wrote him a very accurate letter as to the history of Susanna pointing out certain very cogent critical difficulties about supposing Daniel to have made in Hebrew the plays upon Greek words with which that book credits him. Susanna was part of the Greek Old Testament, and Africanus was engaged in biblical criticism. Origen's reply failed to meet his argument, and shows how far the greatest Alexandrians were from the historical method. But a little later, another Alexandrian, Dionysius, showed critical interest and acumen when he pointed out that the revelation differed markedly from the fourth gospel in both literary style and general tenor. But the general belief in the inspiration of the scriptures brought with it the idea of the infallibility of scripture, 
and the sporadic critical impulses of antiquity went down before this formidable combination. When the Catholic Church added to these the authoritative interpretation of Scripture, criticism was completely halted, and so continued for a thousand years. c. Modern Revival of Criticism It was just this authoritative interpretation, however, that in the end opened the way for the revival of criticism. For over against Christian Scripture there grew up the Catholic tradition, and at length the disparity between the two became too great. The Protestant Reformation resulted. Two centuries later, the critical movement stirring since the Renaissance reached a climax, and criticism began to be definitely applied to the New Testament. It was the text that first felt the touch of criticism. Richard Simon, born 1712, began the critical study in the New Testament text, and Semler, born 1725, carried it on. But Semler went beyond the Catholic scholar in this that under the influence of his classical and historical studies, he applied his criticism not simply to the New Testament text, but as well to the New Testament canon, the origin of which he sought freely to investigate. Semler saw that in order to interpret the New Testament, it must be historically understood, each document in it being interpreted in the light of the circumstances which called it forth and which it was intended to meet. In Semler, we see the transition from the lower, textual, to the higher, literary and historical criticism one of the first problems to emerge in this new study was the synoptic problem that is the question of the literary relationships of the first three gospels investigation of the authorship of the fourth gospel and of the pastoral epistles soon followed but with eighteen thirty five a new unity begins to pervade these detached and generally negative studies it was no longer enough to show that paul did not write the pastorals or john the fourth gospel it was seen that, whoever did or did not write these books, they had possessed great influence and worth and functioned importantly in the world for which they were written, and that even a non-apostolic writing might have great human significance and worth. With Bauer and Strauss, criticism became a constructive method. In this, rather than in their extreme results, lay their contribution to critical study. Their work has been modified and corrected by the influence of the followers, of Schleiermachen, Riskel, and others. d. Historical Interpretation It will be seen that it is criticism that has opened the way for the historical interpretation of the New Testament. The New Testament is no longer interpreted as a book apart, but as having arisen in the closest possible human relationships. While the authoritative Catholic interpretation assumed the agreement of the various writers with one another, the historical method is prepared to recognize disagreements where they exist. In other words, each New Testament author is guaranteed the right to speak as he sees fit, not warped into a rigid and minute conformity to the other authors of the New Testament. Moreover, the sources of the documents and the literary methods which some of the writers employed are to be studied with the same diligence and freedom as are applied to any other historical documents, in order that our knowledge of the New Testament may be as sound and trustworthy as earnest and intelligent inquiry can make it. 2. History of the Canon a. Problems presented by the appearance of the New Testament The best and earliest Christian writings were composed at various times and places to meet the specific demands of definite historical situations. Their writers, with one exception, claimed for them no such authority as Old Testament scripture possessed. How did it come about that they were afterward collected into a sacred canon? 
the primitive church acknowledged the inward authority of the spirit in the heart they esteemed this above any written word the letter killeth the spirit giveth life why did they so soon appeal to a new scripture what was the purpose of the collection was it to supply historical material on christian origins or devotional works for church use or manuals for church life and management or literature for missionary propaganda was it to complete the old testament as a companion volume or to compete with it as a modern substitute how did these books come to be collected their writers did not intend them for such a purpose was it an unconscious automatic movement by which without human contrivance these books and no others found each other amid the christian writings of the first two centuries and clung together who invented the new testament did marcion the first man to put out any considerable collection of paul's letters or justin the first one to show acquaintance with four gospels was it the church at antioch or ephesus or alexandria or rome or did each of these have a share in the process not only the concept but the content of this new testament provokes inquiry upon what principle was it made up was it supposed to include apostolic writings only and all the apostolic writings was the test authorship or age or edification the presence of four gospels raises a question why four instead of one or five there were other gospels and among these four the early church had its favorite gospel the one known to us as matthews how comes it that the new testament includes and coordinates four such narratives although on some matters they very definitely disagree b variety among ancient new testaments even after the early churches had become accustomed to the idea of a christian scripture there was evidently much uncertainty as to what particular books belonged in the collection which they named the new testament in alexandria the epistle of clement the epistle of barnabas and the teaching of the twelve apostles were regarded as scripture by some very intelligent men in rome the revelation of peter seems to have been so esteemed but in syria not even the revelation of john was accepted as part of the new testament the syrian church indeed long admitted only twenty-two books to its new testament omitting second peter jude and second and third john on the other hand the syrian church at one stage in its history accepted third corinthians as canonical the roman church long excluded the epistle to the hebrews from the new testament as late as the fourth century individual christian leaders in asia minor accepted from their new testament various minor epistles which we find in our new testament and even the revelation of john some of our earliest greek manuscripts of the bible sinaiticus alexandrinus include as part of the new testament such books as first and second clement hermas and barnabas out of this ancient confusion when did our new testament emerge in clear and definite form what conditions and considerations determined its final form and who was responsible for it how far are these considerations valid today these questions have a definite bearing upon our conception of the new testament and upon its proper place in modern religious life how shall they be answered c historical approach to the problem the new testament is evidently in some sense the companion of the old whether it arose as supplement or as substitute the old testament is its parent and its explanation we must inquire what was thought of the jewish scriptures by the jewish people of the first century and how jesus and his first followers regarded them to what extent did they regard the old testament as authoritative 
we must ask further what other authorities the first Christians recognized, and what the earliest Christian writers thought about their own authority. We must trace these ideas of inward and outward authorities through the meagre remains of early Christian literature into the fuller stream which develops in the time of Arrhenius and Tertullian. We must observe how the phrase New Covenant or New Testament, first used by Jeremiah and quoted more than once in the New Testament, came to assume a literary sense and to be used of the collection of books in which that new covenant was set forth. We must find out what Christian writings were first esteemed equal in authority to the Old Testament scriptures, and to what they owed this preferment. We must see what part prophets and apostles played in this development, and try to appreciate the situation of the primitive churches, scattered, unrelated, and not highly intelligent, when the gifted and enthusiastic party leaders of the second century began to move among them with energy, eloquence, and fervor. d. The Rise of the New Testament We must study the rise of the Catholic Church, which sought to unify and relate these scattered religious units, and recall them to what it deemed the primitive type of Christian teaching. We shall observe the different ways in which the several leading centers of Christianity, Antioch, Alexandria, Rome, contributed to this movement, and the different lists of Christian writings which the different districts saw fit to canonize by reading from them publicly in Christian worship. While Syria lags behind in canon-building, and Alexandria, with its encyclopedic writers, forges ahead, Rome occupies a middle ground. We shall find Eusebius, perhaps the most intelligent Christian of his time, uncertain as to precisely what books ought to be included in the New Testament, and content to reproduce Origen's classification of them into accepted, rejected, and disputed books. Not until the festal letter of Athanasius in the year 367 shall we find the list of books which we have in our New Testament anywhere set forth without addition or omission. Councils later endorsed this list, but centuries more elapsed before the Greek and Latin churches unanimously concurred in it. Meantime, the Syrian church clung to its limited canon of twenty-two books, and the Armenian church shared its opposition to the book of Revelation and the lesser Catholic epistles, Second Peter, Second and Third John, Jude. While the Ethiopic and Abyssinian church, on the other hand, developed a fuller canon than Western Christianity had done, including eight or nine writings unknown in the Western canon. New Testament in Modern Times An occasional Latin manuscript, it is true, included the spurious little epistle to the Laodiceans, in the Vulgate New Testament. But there was general unanimity in the West as to the contents of the New Testament when the invention of printing made possible the general circulation of the whole collection in a single volume. But this had hardly taken place when the critical views of certain reformers began to threaten the positions of minor documents such as James. Other reformers like Calvin set forth a very rigorous doctrine of Scripture, and on the whole the Reformation tended to confirm and enhance the authority of the canonized New Testament. The spirit of criticism, however, awakened in the Renaissance, at length took up the canon's claim to unique authority. The effects of that inquiry constituted the latest chapter in the history of the New Testament. Under its influence we are today perhaps nearer to the primitive Christian conception of the basis of authority in religion than the Church has been for many centuries. On the whole, no discipline connected with New Testament study is more illuminating and emancipating than the study of the history of the New Testament canon. End of chapter 4, part 4